tired of walking on my feet. They're so tired. They're so tired. Hi, this is James, a four letter word. I'm LP. And I'm Lindsay. And today we're bringing you a special hiatus breaking edition (laughs) (laughs) about the Mercury 13. I stumbled across a couple of books on the subject right around the same time as the Apollo 11 moon landing anniversary, and it really seemed too encompassing to pass up. Mm-hmm. It's a, a note here. They weren't actually called the Mercury 13 at the time. This is the story of 13 women that went through a bunch of the same testing as the Mercury 7 astronauts, you know, John Glenn, Alan Shepard, all those guys, only slightly after them, and basically just got told to go home. (laughs) the time, they were referred to as candidates, or as one of them wrote letters to them, the FLATs, fellow lady astronaut trainees, (laughs) but Mercury 13 has a much better ring to it. (laughs) The FLAT? The FLATs, I know. So, as someone with a continued interest in the space race, my knowledge of women in space before this was basically just that the Soviets were the first to send up a woman really early on in 1963, and then the first American wasn't until 1983. At the time, I assumed the reason for the lack of women was just that we weren't there yet socially, and the fact that the Soviets left nearly two decades between the first and second female cosmonaut indicates they didn't really consider Valentina Tereshkova the beginning of women standing shoulder to shoulder with men in this new field. (laughs) Hmm. And I had no idea until I read these books that we very nearly were there, except for the lack of will on the behalf of some powerful men and possibly one very powerful woman who had the push but not the courage to use it. So what you're saying is that It was a handful of really powerful people in the U.S. that prevented it, whereas the public will for it was there in the U.S.? No, not really. Uh, (laughs) But the public will, to be fair at the time, wasn't always behind NASA to begin with. Like, their first, the first couple of attempts... My favorite, one of my favorite stories is, so a bunch of their first rockets they kept on trying to set off kept on blowing up. So there actually was a joke at the time. How do Florida children learn to count? Five, four, three, two, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And there was, uh, I think it was, they were talking about a redstone rocket. They took the Mercury 7, the guys that they told them they were sending them to space, out to watch this practice rocket launch and it exploded (laughs) and Alan Shepard just turns to the other guys and go well I'm glad they got that one out of the way (laughs) so in any case (laughs) public will wasn't always there so maybe it was just that the people in power were scared that if they put some ladies up there then people would take it even less seriously what are you drinking Lindsay Oh, I'm drinking Foster's. Sweet. Mm, what are you drinking? I'm drinking my shiny Shiner Ruby Redbird, and I'm raising it to the Mercury 13. I'm um, raise it to them as well. So the Mercury <laughs> 13 are Myrtle Cagle, Jerry Cobb, Janet Dietrich, Marion Dietrich, Wally Funk, Sarah Gorlick, Janie Hart, Jean Hickson, Rhea Hurley, Jean Nora Stumbaugh, 
Irene Lemberton, Jerry Sloan, and B. Stedman. So let's start with the woman who, for better or worse, became the public face of the Mercury 13. Uh, Geraldine Cobb, known as Jerry. She grew up a shy child in Oklahoma in part because she had a speech impediment that plagued her for the first few years of elementary school and left her timid in general in social interactions. She got her first flying lesson at 12 from her father, who sounds kind of awesome. Uh, he taught her the basics, even though she needed to sit on pillows to reach the controls. <laughs> uh, she passed the pilot's exams as early as legally allowed on her 16th birthday. Yeah. So she she dropped out of college and played softball in a girls' league, like League of Their Own, to get the money to buy her first plane. Bounced around as a flight instructor and flew in some races and wound up in Florida working at a small plane firm where she talked her way into a job ferrying planes for a handsome stranger. So this handsome stranger, Jack Ford, had his own ferrying company. On her very first ferrying flight that she was taking, his plane broke down part of the way. So she left him behind for the next leg of the journey. She landed at the next refueling spot and got arrested by the Ecuadorian army since the plane was ultimately bound for Peru, who they were having a problem with at that time. So <laughs> she spent 12 days in a jail cell while the embassies were ironing things out in between them. And she made the next leg of the trip to a hero's greeting in Peru. And then she decided to still do this job for another couple of years after that. Had an affair with her boss as well. He declared his love to her while talking her down into how to do a water landing after her plane blew the fuel seal and started jettisoning fuel off the coast of Jamaica. I have no <laughs> idea how this is not a movie. And Lifetime at the very <laughs> least should be all over this stuff. Other than the fact that Jackie Cocker, yeah, right. who you'll meet later, absolutely needed to be have been played by Betty Davis. <laughs> Workplace romances don't work out. And she went back to Oklahoma, where after she used a few planes from like the local manufacturer Aero Design, she got a job there and became one of the first women that was had a senior job at an aircraft firm. That in September of 1959... She was at a conference where her boss introduced her, like her new boss, who she was not having an affair with at all, to General Donald Flickinger and Randall Lovelace, who were the two biggest names in aerospace medicine. At that point, she had 7,000 hours of flying at only 28 years old. And so they were quite impressed with her. And it wow. just so happened that they'd been mulling over the question of how women would fare as astronauts. Lovelace was thinking about it from the perspective of scientific curiosity. You mean like whether or not women did better in space, like physically? Yeah, just whether or not they uh -huh. might, how they might be suited to a space environment. Because at the time, actually the shocking thing that was in one of the books that I read about the testing that these women undergone later is this was some of the first testing that was done on healthy women. You know, usually it was you test women that have a medical condition to see how this sickness that they have is affecting them. But there wasn't really any as much scientific data that was being done about what an ideally healthy woman, like what her body could handle. And just anecdotal data had sort of led him to feel like women withstood various 
you know, heat and noise and pain better than men did. <laughs> he was a scientist. Um, uh-huh. He's kind of a rock star. He's he's this guy who he developed this new system to for like having a parachute deploy automatically at a height where if you were jumping out of a plane, you'd probably black out. And he opted to try this out by doing it himself. <laughs> And, yeah, he blacked out on the way down, like, his glove fell off, he had a little bit of nerve damage in his hand that he had to rehabilitate, but he was just like, well, this isn't gonna work, I want it to be me that, you know, is in trouble because of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, total rock star. The Air Force General, Flickinger, was curious about it because, just practical reasons, an astronaut that weighs less, that also requires less oxygen because of this, means that there's less payload for the rocket to have to push past escape velocity, which, since they were having trouble sending up smaller payloads, like even meager ones, and they were planning on launching a capsule with a person in it, if that person weighed less, they'd be at an advantage. So they just wanted to see if that was, you know, step one, see if it, if women could withstand it. Uh Uh-huh. So they got Jerry's contact information and kept in touch after she let them know that she was very interested in being their test subject for how women would fare in space. She'd broken a couple of uh, altitude and speed and distance records at this point, and she was recorded as saying that when she broke her the altitude record, which is awesome because the first time it didn't work, so she had to go up again really, really high, almost to the point of blacking out, and she just... It's not quite to space, but she just loved how peaceful she felt up there. So Lovelace, you know, gave him the card, told her that she should get as much exercise as she could. And he'd contact her back to when it was there was a testing date for them to work up some diagnostics. First, they were going to test this all out on the Air Force base, make it officially an Air Force project. But that got quashed when there was this older aviatrix, Ruth Nichols, socialite so she had a lot of connections old friend of amelia Earhart that underwent some of these tests because she came at it from the perspective of women would be really good astronauts because they were passive and quiet and dutiful so they could take instruction better than men and be able to deal with the isolation just like you know how housewives have to deal with isolation when their husband's at work all day and <laughs> she flunked a, a bunch of the tests in any case because she was in her 50s. Because, in part, people think she was making a bunch of noise about this, someone leaked how her tests had gone, and they kind of became a laughing stock for having tested this woman. So, basically, the army brass let Flickinger know this is not going to be able to be an Air Force program. So he turned the project over to Randall Lovelace, who, even though he was a NASA consultant at this point, he had his own private institute that he did government contracts at and just in general was able to do lots of scientific experiments. On his board was the husband of a woman named Jackie Cochran, who we will get to later. Early February of 1960, excuse me, a magazine story in Look was released with photos done of a woman named Betty Skelton training alongside the Mercury 7 astronauts. And this was totally a publicity stunt. It was like a series of photo ops. Not really... She didn't actually undergo any of the tests or do any of the training. It was just, oh, look at this cute little story. She was photographed in the men's clothing that was way too big for her, making her look childlike. 
there was lots of pictures of her pointing, like, them pointing things out to her and her looking, oh, so gosh darn impressed. <laughs> did she did she take any issue with that? No, I mean, like, she's quoted in the article talking uh. about, like, how she would love to go up in space, but she doesn't think they'd let her for a while. So, I mean, maybe it, the, the book doesn't really go into her that much. She didn't become one of the Mercury 13. She actually was a pilot and like an acrobat and stuff like that. Yeah. If she said that with any hostility, <laughs> isn't really included in the text, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. here is what that look article thought the qualities that were needed for a woman astronaut <laughs> under 35, oh boy. married, Keeps fit through swimming or skiing, not more masculine sports, you know. She has scientific knowledge from astronomy to zoology. And of course, since the suits that were currently there were designed for men, she'd be flat-chested instead of bosomy. And as for her position on the ship, uh, she would be a pilot engineer or a scientist-wife. And she'd have the extra duty of providing comfort for others while being able to withstand isolation herself. So I'm not really sure what the position of a scientist wife entails. (laughs) Does it mean you're a scientist and being a wife? I don't know. I don't know. It sounds rough. This was the climate that Jerry went in when she went to be tested at the Lovelace Institute. She was very keenly aware that if she didn't make it, that would probably be it for women in the field for a while. The staff were asked to push her as hard as they'd pushed any of the Mercury 7 astronauts who tested there earlier. And it was this huge gamut of medical tests. Like, basically every fluid or solid that could be drawn and tested was drawn and tested. Every bone was x-rays. They froze her eardrum, giving her immediate vertigo and nausea, and then a nurse sat there with a stopwatch to time how long it took her eyes to stop spinning. There was, like, other tests where they, like, shocked you. There was this one that the other astronauts called a diabolical machine, and it's this exercise bike that there's a metronome going that determines your speed that you're supposed to be going. And so you're hooked up to everything, monitoring your heart rate and your oxygen intake and anything else they could, And so it would increase the drag on your back wheel every minute, stimulating a steeper and steeper incline until the body is taken into the brink of unconsciousness, which is like within eight to 12 minutes. She made it about like 10. Most people like the other astronauts usually made it around 10, 11, you know, all that. Yeah. And so then they would take you off and you would basically just like fall over. Like other tests where you'd blow in tubes to measure your lung capacity and monitor you for any heart defect. I could probably think of a lot funner weeks, but at the end of it, she was told that she like passed and that she was in the top percentile of men and women who'd taken this test. Or rather, she was in the top percentile of everyone who'd taken this test. So she basically helped prove that there are actually very little physical differences in strength. Um, if you're talking about strength and health in the sense like that, this. yeah, how much you can withstand, then, yeah, she'd gone yeah. through the same tests. And actually, these are the tests that to, for spoiler alert, these are the, t- the only tests that all of the women that passed took. And these were the exact same phase one tests that were taken by the Mercury 7, the right stuff, astronauts. That seems to me the perfect thing. Like, that's... That's what directly challenges the idea that women are, like, just constitutionally more fragile. 
Right. And that was still totally believed at the time. Um, yeah. Like, oh my god, I'm weak. I'm going to faint. Oh, dear. No, you're not. You can stand this shit for ten minutes. Uh, childbirth. Okay, so... <laughs> And also, in being able to withstand this, but then still be able to perform well, she also tested on the Mastiff, which had recently been christened the Vomit Comet by Alan Shepard. It's this giant gyroscope that spins in three directions at once, and you have the controls for it, so you're trying to gain control of it and stabilize it. But if you overcompensate, then you start the spin going worse, and you have to do this in three directions at once. So she got it handled after 45 minutes, and after that, the crew told her that she'd done really exceptionally well, the crew that was testing her, and also that the space capsule won't be nearly as bad as the ride you just took. Which I gotta think, after that, she's probably like, thanks. Good to know. <laughs> And so Randall Lovelace noted on the graph of her metrics, there is no question but that women will eventually participate in spaceflight. Therefore, we must have data on them at least comparable to what we've obtained on men. He already at this point was intending on testing 12 other pilots. And so these pilots came from a couple of different sources. Jerry knew some of, some of them from air races and just from the fact that there weren't a lot of women in the field at the time. So, you know, if you met another one, you tended to try to band together and help each other out when you could. Mm -hmm. huh, some of you. And there was the obviously the association of the 99s, which is the one that Amelia Earhart started that still exists today. It's like a women's pilot association. A lot of really cool people have been in it. <laughs> a lot of women wrote into Lovelace as Jerry's story gained more publicity. And Randall Lovelace was also really close personal friends with the most famous woman pilot in America at that point, who is already sort of peeved that he hadn't sought her aid on the project yet, notwithstanding the fact that she was, at this point, overseas running the FAI, or, sorry, excuse me, the FAI, which is the Federation Aviation Internationale. She was the first woman president. And that is Jacqueline Cochran. Here comes in a woman. We actually scrapped a podcast that we started about her. Um, it never really hung together right. Yeah. And in the actual sense of the word, I'm ambivalent about her. Like, I don't know whether one side of her character justifies or vilifies the other. On the one hand, her accomplishments just can't be ignored. She broke a myriad of speed, distance, and altitude records, as well as running the WASP during World War II, which if you think the struggles for women to be taken seriously that you're about to hear go down, if you think those are bad, imagine the kind of malarkey that came out 15 years earlier. <laughs> and it's completely undisputed that she had a very pushy, stubborn aspect about her character, and I'm not sure it's to the degree that a man with her traits would be called anything but driven or ambitious. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, <laughs> there's a bit too much in her part of this story and others I've heard of her. Qu the word quizzling comes to mind. Um, <laughs> what did she do? You'll, you'll, you'll see, but there's a, a line about her in Martha Ackman's book on the Mercury 13. And she said... Jackie opened doors to female pilots so that she could be the first to walk through them. As long as she was number one, Cochrane cared little about who followed. They had just better stay far enough behind. She... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> she was very competitive, and it, un unlike other trailblazing women, 
it didn't really seem to matter to her if per she left a track that could be followed. In any case, there's a lot more to come on that. Uh, but with Jerry, Jackie, and Lovelace's contributions, the list was assembled of women that had at least a thousand flying hours, and their ages ranged from 22 to 40. Some had already been selected mm-hmm. by the time that Jackie sent her letter with the list of recommendations to Randall Lovelace on what he should be looking for. Um, she wanted him to, it was a four page letter <laughs> and she wanted him to include both very young and older women. And with the testing, the former, she'd said that because she found some of the younger pilots in the wasp to be the most driven. And the latter was probably for her own benefit. Cause at this point she was 53 years old. Uh, although she told people she was younger. <laughs> Maybe my least favorite suggestion of hers was regarding the marital status of the women tested, um, which is something that Randall didn't have at all included in his screenings. She said, when it comes to mental attitudes and emotional stability, you might not find it medically wise to have a group of unmarried oldsters on your hands. <laughs> hmm, boo. I'm going to be an unmarried oldster. (laughs) Probably. Me too. All right. So 19 total women were tested at the Lovelace facility. Here's the background on the 12 that passed. So there was Janet and Marion Dietrich. They were glamorous, identical twins who were friends with Jackie and favorites of hers. Obviously, she was really into the whole stepping down from the cockpit and being knockout looking with lipstick on because she also ran a cosmetics company. Janet was a pilot and professionally she was actually one of the first women that the FAA hired and Marion was a reporter who flew on weekends. At first Janet was intimidated to take the tests. Um, She was worried it might jeopardize her position and then Marion wrote her this letter persuading her to do it and I'm just going to quote it here. Jan, we are poised on the edge of the most exciting and important adventure man has ever known. Most must watch. A few are privileged to record. Only a handful may participate and feel above all the others attuned with their time. To take part in this adventure, no matter how small, I consider the most important thing we have ever done. To be asked to participate, the greatest honor. To accept an absolute duty. So go, Jan, go. And take your part, even as a statistic even as a statistic in man's greatest adventure. So you're not really going to say no thanks <laughs> to a letter like that. Yeah. So Janet also signed up for testing. <laughs> there was also Janie Hart. And at 40, she was the oldest woman to be tested. She was a social activist, a wife of a senator, a mother of eight. She got her helicopter license, one of the first women to do it, so that she could fly her husband to campaign stops. We'll get into her more later, but trust me, she's a pip. Wally Funk, uh, Mary Wallace. I know, I love that name, right? She was a 21-year-old flight instructor that had a staggering 3,000 hours in the air at her age, and she was the youngest accepted into the program. Sarah Gorlick, she was an engineer assistant at AT AT&T, although she pointed out that all the men in her department were engineers. The women were engineer assistants. She had a math degree, and she'd been flying since she was 15 years old. She was the only one in the program with an engineering background. Jean Hickson was the only Mm. former WASP. She was a third-grade teacher who was dubbed in papers as the supersonic school marm because she rode in a supersonic jet. She 
She had, like, connections still at the military base from her WASP days. She took students in her class to loads of research facilities, and she fudged down her age two years in the papers to Lovelace because she thought she had to be 35. Uh, Her sister later was going through it, and she was like, that's probably the only time she's ever lied. Wow. Well, I'd lie to to buy a supersonic rocket. So there was also Jerry Sloan, knew Jerry Cobb through their days air racing. She'd started a small contract firm with one of her fellow pilots to get government work as a test pilot, since that's kind of the only way she was going to get that kind of work as a woman. When she got the letter asking her if she wanted to be one of the astronaut candidates, she looked so astonished that her nine-year-old son wanted to know what was in the letter. When she read him the first part of the letter, he whooped and started tearing ass around the neighborhood yelling, My mom's going to the moon! Irene Leverton had been a former crop duster, air racer, and air taxier when she heard of the astronaut tests. The anecdote I can't resist about her is that when she was flying over the opening of an airfield, she was tasked with dispensing Jackie Cochran's new tailspin perfume as a publicity stunt. She got the dose wrong and dumped a bunch of the cops working crowd control. People said it was the first time Chicago cops had ever smelled good. Um, (laughs) Berenice, a.k.a. B. Stedman, worked in the factory to get money for flying lessons, and then she became a flight instructor. She opened her own flight school at 24 and then later married one of her lawyer students. Jean Nora was a flight instructor at University of Oklahoma. Rhea Hurley, a corporate pilot who Jerry Cobb knew from racing. Myrtle Cagle was flying transport out of an Air Force base in Georgia when she got the call asking if she wanted to be tested. While the list was being assembled, Jerry Cobb had undergone a second round of testing, the publicity from which had caused some of these applicants to write to Lovelace. So this round was aimed at testing her psychological capacity for dealing with space travel. In between when the Mercury 7 had undergone their testing and when hers began in the fall of 1960, there'd been this new invention, the sensory deprivation tank. It was like psychology's new favorite toy that provoked epiphanies, distress, or hallucinations among the people put in it. In Mm -hmm. contrast to this, the men in Mercury 7 had just been tested for how they could withstand isolation by sitting in a dark furnished room. Sure, there was technically no external stimulation given to them by examiners, but they weren't exactly completely sensory deprived or weightless. I mean, John Glenn had actually managed to, while pacing the room, he found this writing tablet and made a bunch of lists about exercise, clothing, and composed poetry. Probably hard stuff to do when you're sitting in a tiny capsule, because in those days, you were just like, you were basically just like crouching them and flitting in space. Yeah. Look for a writing tablet there, buddy. I don't know. You could ask the Iraqis. Uh, the, interrogation te- the interrogation techniques of the United States military and the torture techniques are all centered on sensory deprivation. So you can just ask the Guantanamo people or someone. I don't think that sure they, they spend a lot of money to put them in a tank floating with water. In darkness. <laughs> I yeah, don't know. But they do everything. They do like the equivalent of what you just said the men had to go to, except for they don't give them furnishings. <laughs> yeah, that's true. They, but they probably do it for longer than like two or three hours, which is, I think, all the guys had to do it in a matter of hours. It wasn't like they left you in there for like three days or something. I mean, at that point, oh, you weren't okay. in space no. for that long either. It's not like you were going to be in space for a week. It would be 
I think at that point, up until I think Valentina Tereshkova had when she went up for five days, it was longer than all flights that the American men had done so far combined. <laughs> so it wasn't a huge amount of time that they were asking you to be up there. Anyway, the sensory deprivation tests on Jerry Cobb were run by Dr. Jay Shirley, who was a pioneer in the use of sensory deprivation tank, and his assistant, Catherine Waters. And at the time, the max that a human could withstand in the sensory deprivation tank was thought to be about six hours. This is in no way disabused by the fact that the day before Jerry went in, this male reporter got put in and experienced hallucinations, mood swings, and kept on bemoaning his sympathy for Sam the Space Monkey. He lasted four and a half hours, and his longest period of silence was less than six minutes. Because the other thing about it is not only is it dark and you don't have no external stimulation, you're also weightless because you're floating in water that they put Epsom salt in. So you don't even have to try to tread water or anything. You're just floating. Conventional wisdom was no one can last longer than six hours. Jerry was in the tank for nine hours and 40 minutes. The transcript of all that she said when she was in there ran barely two pages. She was calm basically the whole time, though at the end she started seeing a light that wasn't there and surely felt in his evaluation that when she asked to come out, it was in part because she was scared that she was going to start hallucinating more and that might not look good on her evaluation. But from the sensory deprivation tank and other tests, he said that she had exceptional and unique qualities for being an astronaut and I thought rather poignantly described her as a girl who excels in loneliness. Okay. Which is probably good if you're an astronaut, because nobody's there. Yeah. So 18 women went in for the same arduous testing that Jerry had originally undergone at the Lovelace Institute between January and August of 1961. The 12 I mentioned earlier were the ones that passed the exact same phase one physical examinations that the Mercury 7 male candidates passed. The others were eliminated for slight medical problems and warned them for claustrophobia. In their regulations of the test... The women spoke of how more than a few doctors complimented them on not griping about it as much as the men had. The tests were often painful, but a lot of the time they didn't complain about it because they didn't want to be marked down for it. In one story, B. Stedman had a needle the size of a nail in her hand and was being given shocks on it when the camera that was going to record this experiment, it's film jammed. So the doctors told her, it's so cool, we'll take it out, we'll fix the camera, and we'll put it back, in, and then we'll just put it back in again, it'll be fine. And she goes, uh, no. <laughs> and she fixed the camera with only her left hand so they could continue. So when Sarah Gorlick was told that she had passed, she was puzzled at the gloomy expression on Lovelace's face. She asked him what the problem was, and he said that he had bad news for the next person that was going to come in. On her way out, she saw Jackie Cochran enter the office, and the shouting match started soon afterwards as Sarah hurried out of earshot. The speculation on much of those that have written about the Mercury 13 is that this is when it was confirmed to the 53-year-old Cochran that she was not in sufficient health to pass these exams. So Jerry started writing to the other women as her FLATs, fellow lady astronaut trainees, and advised them to come take the same psych tests that she had. She offered to put them up at her house in Oklahoma City. So only two of them, Rhea Hurley and Wally Funk, were able to get there on their own funds right away. So she put them up in the guest room, and she decked it out with stars and views of planets. She called it her space dormitory. And as for how they did in the (laughs) tank, Rhea Hurley was in the tank for 10 hours. Wally Funk 
stayed in for 10 hours and 30 minutes, and she didn't say a damned word the whole time. <laughs> and they passed the other tests as well. <laughs> I know, it was like she heard, wait a minute. So she stayed in for 10. She stayed over for 9 hours and 40, and she talked, and she just shut up the whole time. There's also a story of when she was on the bike, she asked one of the people, like, what the record time was, and someone just told her 10, because that's what they thought it was, and she made it to 11, and just, like, fell over. <laughs> Turned out it wasn't the record, but that didn't stop her from telling everyone that she'd beaten the record for, basically, the rest of her life. <laughs> I mean, she's not dead, but up until now. <laughs> the next round of Jerry's testing... <laughs> was 10 days at the Pensacola U.S. Naval Base. To give you a sense of how little the test was adjusted for the fact that women were taking it rather than men, one of the physical tests was for the 5'4 Jerry to scale a 6'6-inch wall, which, you know, if you're a male Navy pilot and you're like 5'10 or 6 feet, it's annoying, but it's not almost impossible. And it took her three tries, and they kind of wrinkled their brows at that. So this it's, it's not like she passed the handicapped for women tests. <laughs> when it came time for her to take tests that required pressure suits, they gave her the smallest male one that she had, and it still took them an hour and a half to seal it properly to the fact that she was smaller <laughs> than them. Mm -hmm. And this was for a test where they took her into a simulation of 60,000 feet in the air, had her, you know, manipulating stuff with these giant oversized gloves to prove that she could do it, and then took it pressure-wise into basically a free fall down to sea level to see how she'd you know, see how she'd handle. <laughs> they also put her in an EEG machine, so we're basically attaching needles to her head when she was in the co-pilot seat of this jet that was doing aerobatic maneuvers to see what G-forces would do to her brain. Another test was called the Dilbert Dunker Affectionately that she took, and considering what it did, I'm kind of surprised it has an affectionate nickname. <laughs> what did it do? So it's designed to simulate a disorienting water landing so you got put in this drum capsule slammed into this pool at velocity and then you have to hold your breath calmly as the dark capsule fills up with water and then all the while not panicking unhook yourself from the seat find your way back up and swim up in the right direction so yeah cute nickname totally um <laughs> she made it out without the need to resort to help from rescue divers and then the last test that I can that I'm gonna describe sounds super trippy. It's this slow rotation room. So it's made up to look like a typical room, but it's on a gyroscope and it's rotating. And since there's no windows or point of reference, you can't really tell. Uh -huh. And then she had to throw objects at targets. So after her first throw went totally wild, she had to learn to trust her calculations of where the objects were rather than what her eyes were telling her. And then she was able to hit them. Uh, when her testing was over, she was told she scored as well as experienced Navy pilots. And the staff threw her a party. Nice. <laughs> After she passed, because they sort of were putting her through as like the guinea pig each time. You know, like, well, if women can't even do this, why are we going to bother to test 12 of them? Okay. You know. So he wired the other FLATs to tell them to look to take time off in June of that year to continue the testing. As he was speaking more and more in the testing, in public, she was put more and more in the spotlight. And she started using this to try to argue that putting a woman in space before the Soviets was an achievable goal for NASA and an important one. She started writing letters to the newly appointed NASA chief, James Webb, urging the same thing, saying that if an American woman was launched first, 
it would have tremendous prestige and also prove that our systems are reliable and safe. That was a claim that a lot of other Mercury 13 pilots would have recognized because they were pretty familiar with bosses hiring them in part so that their planes were so simple that a woman could fly them. (laughs) Yeah, there was one where Jan was at a job interview and the boss kept on asking her what she'd wear to fly the planes and she finally gave in and started saying, well, I guess I could wear a skirt or something if you want me to, death glare. (laughs) And so she realized what it was the first time when after she landed one, she gets out of the plane and the customer turns to her boss and goes, oh my God, it basically lands itself. (laughs) (laughs) So they're at a conference. Lovelace is speaking publicly the first time about the testing and he introduced Jerry to the audience. And James Webb was giving the keynote speech, and he appointed her, to her great surprise, as a consultant to NASA. She, I guess, didn't really get the message that it was being done to co-opt her, and wrote him, I am truly humbled by the confidence you have placed in me, and will do my utmost to accomplish any assignment you may give me. Like, there's a series of, like, painful, unanswered, totally earnest letters that she kept on writing him about. Like, all right, well, I think this new finding would interest you. And it's like, he he never read any of these. (laughs) Except for while rolling his eyes. So at this appointment, the FLATs didn't know it, but there was about to be a struggle going on behind the scenes for control of this little venture. So Jackie's at a conference in Europe and she hears about Jerry's appointment and then through reporters about the other 12 going to this next round of testing in Pensacola and she's not a happy camper because she wasn't being kept in the loop, which she loved to be. So she tries to track down Jerry Cobb to have a word. She finds out they're at the same hotel, but I think probably kind of sanely Jerry didn't want to meet up with her <laughs> and she like pulled a whole, oh sorry didn't get the invitation until I was out peace type excuse and Jackie calls up her quite rich husband and shits a brick so her husband Floyd Odlum which with a name like that he totally he had to have looked like a monopoly guy so he writes this letter to Lovelace reminding him of the generous support to his foundation in the testing but also just on a more personal note just letting him know how hurt he and Jackie were that they'd been left out of this I mean they were really close friends Lovelace's daughter's name was Jacqueline Like, they were extremely close friends. (laughs) So Lovelace writes him back, apologizing, saying he intended no offense, he valued their friendship. Jackie writes him back, suggesting that none of this whole underhanded passive aggressiveness had just occurred, and just asked the testing be moved to September so that she can go to it. And she added, because apparently she's this creature without knowledge of irony, she wrote this as a swipe at Jerry. It is apparent that one of the girls has an in and expects to lead the pack. She states as much to others who have reported the conversation to me. Favoritism would make the project stink to high heaven. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Betty Davis would have been so good at her. So Lovelace, you know, gives in, moves moves the training to September 17th. And the letters go to the FLAT from Cochrane letting them know that she's footing the bill and cautioning them that it's not yet an astronaut program. So they should, they shouldn't be too public about things. And I don't really understand why this next part happened. Like 
at all. But Jackie spoke to Navy Vice Admiral Peary in early August, and she wanted to make sure that he understood that she felt that there should only be a woman's program if it didn't impede or interfere with the progress of the men's program. And she felt it should only go forward in the proper time and the proper way. Now, maybe it's just because the increase of numbers in women's Mm -hmm. testing would have regardless Mm -hmm. made the Navy write to NASA to ensure they had the requirement for this testing. But back when Jerry was being tested, the amount of permission requested was just that they wrote to the Pentagon that this jet flight they were about to take her on was to determine the difference between male and female astronauts. And some wag wrote back, if you don't know the difference, we refuse to put the money into the project (laughs) as a joke. And then was like, yeah, sure, whatever. We don't care. We have limitless post-war money. Do whatever you want. Peary writes to James Webb asking if NASA needs this testing. And he gets a reply that says, NASA does not at this time have a requirement for such a program. There was no official dispensation for this project. Lovelace Uh wound up having to send out a telegram to the women about five days before they were supposed to be there. A couple of whom had already quit their jobs that it probably will not be possible to carry out this part of the program. And Jackie was nowhere to be found at this point. She'd already written to Lovelace that she was going to be busy with some jet testing in California. And since she'd just be a spectator at Pensacola, she'd go where she was needed. And it got canceled. What a bitch. Yeah. NASA in part at this point justified refusing women because then it would have to give way to all sorts of other interest groups interest groups as it called people who weren't white men (laughs) so just to make him all the more awesome (laughs) edward r murrow at the time was advocating to them that they send an african-american up since there were some pilots out of the korean war who'd fit the qualifications he said we could retell our whole space effort to the non-white world which is most of it (laughs) (laughs) They uh, didn't didn't take his call. <laughs> <laughs> nice points for him. Yeah, oh, exactly. Sucks. In the wake of the testing being canceled, and this is while Jerry has been going around Washington for the past couple months, asking everybody, "Why was this canceled? Why was this canceled? This shouldn't be canceled. This is important. Please listen to me." Jerry and Jackie had their first real meeting at John Glenn's launch into space in February of 1962. And Jerry was savvy enough that she brought a reporter friend with her to dinner (laughs) to prevent, like, a total outright ambush. (laughs) But it was clear even to her, even through the conversation that they had, that they had really different ideas on the timetable of women becoming part of the space program. Their debate continued in writing, with Cochran writing Cobb that the qualified male candidates needed to go first, and that a larger pool of women needed to be tested first. She said, women, for one reason or another, have always come into each phase of aviation a little behind their brothers. They should, I believe, accept this delay and not get into the hair of public authorities about it. Their time will come, and pushing too hard just now could possibly retard rather than speed that date. It is better to be sound than quick. Oh, well, that's inspiring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cobb wrote her back that she wasn't content to listen to NASA's silly excuses. She kept on lobbying in Washington for NASA to answer just why they weren't going to allow the testing to continue. 
What Jerry didn't know is that she wasn't the sole recipient of this letter from Jackie. She was the target of it. Since copies of it were sent to James Webb, the head of NASA at that point, and his deputy, and Robert Gilbreth, the head of spaceflight, and Curtis LeMay, the chief of the Air Force, as well as to LBJ, the vice president. It was clear she was letting NASA know that she could be the public face of women in space who was going to tow the party line. Mm -hmm. So Jerry contacted her fellow lady astronaut trainee, Janie Hart, for her help. She just thought she was going to get a list of phone numbers. She didn't know the dedicated fighter she was going to find in Janie, who had, in her own words, blew her stack when testing was canceled. (laughs) Since she saw it as just another instance in American life where women's opportunities were being limited. In March of 1962, Janie sent an open letter to every member of the Senate and House committees on the space program and spoke with LBJ's press secretary to try to get a meeting with him since he was the official liaison with NASA. Her petition to Congress said that women could have been included in the space program years ago if certain men would realize that a woman at the controls of a capsule would not destroy their virility. How would you prove that? That it wasn't going to destroy their virility? Yeah. I guess because... Would you have to, like, get pregnant right after or something? No, no. She was saying that the only reason that some men didn't want women to be flying a space capsule is because it would make them feel impotent that they weren't doing it. (laughs) Oh, so they would have to prove it by, like... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it's quite provable. (laughs) Other than having done it and miraculously, um, NASA was has still been able to sire children. I don't know. (laughs) Well, no, that's what people say about the fact that Valentina Tereshkova married a fellow cosmonaut and is that it was in part to prove that you could go to space and still have a baby. Hmm. (laughs) Point being, I love Janie Hart. She's the best. A reporter asked her what her husband thought of the petition because he's a senator and she just goes, never asked him. (laughs) (laughs) They were like, but wouldn't he be nervous if you went to space? And she's like, well, Mrs. Glenn was probably nervous too. She got over it. In part because of Janie's political connections, they met up with LBJ in April of 1962. They decided on this two-pronged approach. First, Jerry argued that there was a lot of scientific data to be gained by sending up a woman as opposed to just only sending up men. She also pointed out the argument about how the lower body weight meant lower payloads when you're dealing with rockets that are still, you know, not that far of the prototype phase. If you can stress them less, that's a good thing. And that women were better able to withstand all sorts of discomforts that astronauts have to deal with. Mm -hmm. And Janie Hart took the social reform tack of pointing out that President Kennedy had just announced a commission on the status of women and issued an executive order that women needed to have equality of opportunity in government jobs and that doors needed to be open to them for training, selection, advancement, and equal pay. So Johnson somehow thought it would be a good idea to play to their sympathy for his plight that, look, a lot of other minority groups are trying to get in on this too and letting women in would really open the floodgates. So Cobb said that if the other groups had qualified candidates, she really wasn't getting the problem. He had no reply to that. And then she also pointed out to him that if he was talking about population and votes, the majority was actually women. So... (laughs) But the meeting still ended on Johnson stating that it was NASA's decision, not his. 
Okay. What but they managed to get a House subcommittee hearing on whether or not NASA was being discriminatory against women in the space program. So the main thrust of their argument was that NASA had a requirement for people to have jet test pilot experience. And since women weren't allowed to fly jets in the military and in business areas, women didn't get hired to fly test jets, it was pretty much the exact same thing as saying no women are allowed unless the women's can't like equivalent experience could be taken into account. Uh-huh. So the witnesses for this hearing were originally supposed to be Jerry Cobb, Janie Hart, and then from NASA, George Lowe and the nation's new hero, John Glenn. And then Jackie Cochran pulled some strings to be in on it on the same day as Jerry and Janie. And so NASA added Scott Carpenter, another astronaut like Glenn to round out NASA's side of the story. Uh-huh. It's really hard to not make her come off in a vil- as a villain. <laughs> she sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when Jerry started off the hearing, she named for the first time in public the other 12 women who'd been tested. She continued reiterating that the women had a lot of really great assets to offer the space program. And she was so nervous. Like, the notes were littered with these really cute um, reminders like, never apologize, no timidity, in control. <laughs> <laughs> And she closed her statement about the advantages that women could offer, reminding the committee of how women were there in the Mayflower and the wagon train, ending with, we seek only a place in our nation's space future without discrimination. We ask as citizens of this nation to be allowed to participate with seriousness and sincerity in the making of history now. We offer you 13 women volunteers. They should have just taken the rocket. Oh, I like that idea. Yeah, just bizarro history. Yeah. They're just like, hmm. Yeah, please. Can we get someone to remake this history? And then someone punches Jackie in the face. And I would have totally, I would have totally, if they would have diverted their energies to building some sort of force that was going to help them, like, take the rockets, <laughs> I would have totally. <laughs> no, there was a story from earlier where Jerry Sloan not Cobb and Jackie had been at some event together, like right as she was Jerry Sloan was starting to be a candidate. And Jackie gets up there and she's just like, Well, my girls and the wasp, they the men were scared to fly these planes. Yes. But I said, My girls can do it. And then Jerry was just like, first of all, you just call a bunch of the men in the audience cowards. So you're an asshole. And second of all, they still flew the pl- the girls still flew the planes, not you. So you're taking credit for for their work. So you're still an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I am never speaking with you again <laughs> on the stage. Anyway, back to this this hearing that if you have a, even a slight interest in space, you know, didn't go well. Yeah. So the chairman of the hearing actually had the nerve to make a joke after Jerry's like sad, earnest speech. I think we can safely say at this time that the whole purpose of space exploration is to someday colonize these other planets. And I don't see how we can do that without women. And (laughs) (laughs) Janie, mother of eight, who was the next to speak, she calls him on it and goes, I can help but notice that you call upon me immediately after you refer to colonizing space. (laughs) (laughs) So here are some of the highlights of Janie's awesome speech. It is inconceivable to me that the world of outer space should be restricted to men only like some sort of stag club. I'm not arguing that women be admitted to space merely so that they won't feel discriminated against. I'm arguing that they be admitted because they have a very real contribution to make. 
Later in her speech, she preemptively tries to answer arguments that she knew Jackie was going to make. She knew some of these because she met with Jackie in her Manhattan apartment before the hearing and tried to get her to at least agree that testing should continue. But Jackie was really adamant that the testing restart with a larger testing pool and that it should not encroach at all in the men's program while there were still qualified male candidates. So in her next bit, she was anticipating Jackie's later speech when she said, it seems to me a basic error in American thought that the only time women are allowed to make a full contribution to a better nation is when there is a manpower shortage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She argued further that while housewives were all well and good, it shouldn't be the path women choose because they're shut out of other fields because they're discriminated against. Let's face it, she said, for many women, the PTA is just not enough. And then the two of them answered some questions from the representatives. Cobb specifically responded to a question on if jet test pilot experience was crucial. She said that the job of an astronaut wasn't testing jets, but piloting a spacecraft. And that a pilot with thousands of hours of flight experience had doubtless encountered and handled unexpected emergencies, which is sort of what people are talking about when they wanted a, you know, a jet test pilot who had to handle those emergencies in a really high speed environment. The experience were equivalent, she argued. And if NASA felt differently, maybe they could let some of the female candidates train in jets or jet simulators to test that idea. (laughs) And Jackie comes in late to the hearing during their question and answer session, and she didn't hear any of their speeches. Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah. It's a power move, man. (laughs) I somehow just got reminded of Kanye West. Uh, No. I'm going to let you finish, but I'm the most important female pilot of all time. When she took the podium, Jackie stated that she didn't believe there had been any discrimination against women in the astronaut program because, after all, she'd done a lot of jet testing and she'd passed a lot of the astronaut tests. And even though she really wanted to go into space and she couldn't, she didn't think she'd been discriminated against. Wow. Oh, my God. In fact, with that in mind, she thought the hearing was going about this whole thing in the wrong way. It really shouldn't be a hearing about if women had been discriminated against and whether that meant they should be allowed in the program. But if women were included in the program, would it speed up, slow down, make more expensive or complicate the schedule of exploratory space flights that our country has undertaken? Yikes. Mm. And she said, well... Sure, a few women have passed the test, but that isn't actually, like, proof that women would, in general, be able to be astronauts. She thought the solution was to start from scratch and get a larger group, considering the time research will take and the natural rate of attrition among the volunteers due to marriage, childbirth, and other causes. We don't want to slow down the program and waste a great deal of money when you take a large group of women in Because you lose some of them to marriage. Oh, God, gross. And this was, like, literally the exact same thing that people had said to her when she was doing the wasp. And she, like, plowed them into the ground over it. Completely without irony. Definitely a villain. Yeah. I just don't understand how how that didn't create cognitive dissonance. Like, you know what I mean? Like, people said this shit to me and I shut them down, like, 15 years ago. Yeah. But since I'm not going to be one of these people anymore, therefore their arguments are valid. (laughs) One of the representatives even 
did point out to her that the Mercury Seven, a lot of them were married and had children, and she goes, well, yeah, but they didn't have the kids, did they? Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she closed her speech saying, even if we are second in getting a woman into the new environment, it's better than to take a chance on having women fall flat in their faces. Oh, God, that's so sad. Mm-hmm. I mean... I know. Well, I would have definitely defected to the Soviet Union in those days. Well, but they... They weren't actually better about it either. There was, like, after Valentina Tereshkova went up, it was totally a publicity stunt. She was a parachutist. She was not a pilot. She was just a parachutist who just towed the party line and was, like, a good communist. Yeah, and but then at least... even then, there was, like, a load of, like, all throughout their propaganda, like, well, she was okay at it, really, but... And then people shit-talked her for years saying she was actually really terribly shit at it and they didn't send another one up for 20 years like right but it was not because they were progressive at all it was just they wanted to show them up but they at least but they were progressive in the sense that they thought like it was good pr to treat women at least equally i mean we we didn't even get that far we were like no definitely still second class I don't know if engaging in tokenism is really the same as treating people equally. It's just more just like, hey, hey, ladies, here's a bone. Here's a bone. Take it. (laughs) I don't know. I think think it definitely is. I think for people to... That's like saying that it's not a big deal that the president came out and said he's for gay rights. I think it's a huge deal for gay people. And I think it would be a huge deal for women if you had you know, governments and, and authorities saying, hey, we're going to actually say that women are equal or give lip service to it. No, it would be more. No, I, I don't think that's really the same. I think it would be more like if you had a commission on something that was going to be the most important thing in the country and you made a member of a minority group or a not minority, but maligned group it once and then didn't again for 20 years and then shit talked them behind their back the whole time in the interim about how shit they were at it. Yeah, but in general they I mean they didn't <laughs> they didn't just have women as housewives in the Soviet Union, you know? It's not really as bad. Like No, women, not just women but like it had the, equal rights for you know, and during this time women in the United States didn't. No, I mean I guess there's I guess it's the difference between what you're going to say it, it is the fact that you're saying a certain thing as a society, but not always doing it as good or like rather better than not even saying it. I don't know. Right. But what the United States was saying is straight up women are second class inferior beings. And I'm saying <laughs> I would rather live in a country that is at least saying that women are not inferior and maybe failing sometimes to fulfill it rather than live in a country where they just straight up aren't even trying to get there. But the fact is, is one of them was a top-down selection from the government of someone that they weren't selecting for their ability, but for their, well, their ability to be a good astronaut, but rather their ability to say the right things in, in and out of the capsule versus what was scientific minds in the know selecting someone that they thought would be good for the job and then those women fighting pretty damn hard to be able to do that job. Yeah, yeah, I'm not denying that, you know, there are some inadequacies in the in the top-down structure, of course, of the Soviet socialist system, but we have the same, we play the same kind of politics in the United States as well. Oh, yeah, no, 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 I'm not, 
arguing, saying that the government system that completely failed at this was in any way necessarily better at accomplishing getting a woman in space, because clearly they didn't. (laughs) But, like, just that it's not really... It would have been... I do think it would be a a better victory if these women had succeeded than if it had come from a top-down structure of, you're just going to get put up there because you're going to say the right thing. You know? But the United States does have a top-down structure. Um, I don't I don't know. I guess you're presuming that the American people have, like, some sort of, like, democratic say where the Soviet people didn't, and I'm not totally sold on that idea. I, I do think that during periods of the Iron Curtain, yes, that Soviet people had less of a say, but I will say that there were a lot of social pressures on Americans that are, that, during that period, that were in their own way almost as confining as the political pressures, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we had McCarthyism, and we're also not allowed to go to Cuba, so... I mean, I want to go to Cuba. It seems really cool. So, yeah. So Jackie, even though she was ostensibly in the women's side of the story, part of the program, she'd already sent this speech to basically everyone at NASA to get their notes on it. She encompassed their notes, except for those of her old pal Randy Lovelace, who basically asked her to stress the urgency on resuming the tests for the Mercury 13, and that letting her know that this testing could continue without interfering with the men's program. So if she wanted if she wanted to get some scientific data to back up the idea, this whole larger group thing is like, you have 12 more right now. <laughs> yeah. Why do another search in the already small field of women with engineering or pilot backgrounds when you have 12 right now? <laughs> yeah. The next day of the hearing... The audience area was all buzzing with the press and the spectators that were eager to get photographs of American hero John Glenn. There was, you know, some testimony on the subject. George Lowe admitted that he'd turned down female applicants, but it said it was because of lack of experience. So he took the whole argument about the fact that mandating that it was just the jet test pilots discrimination said well there are jet pilots outside the military and they aren't tested outside the military so if women aren't doing that that job it's just that they're really not that interested in it Hmm. and if if they want us to test their fitness on military equipment it's that equipment is all really busy (laughs) busy stuff that us guys need you know um Yeah. And John Glenn, who was kind of a point of contention in Jerry's argument, since ostensibly all of the astronauts were supposed to have college degrees and some sort of engineering training, and he didn't. (laughs) And then he just got an honorary degree given to him when he was in the program. Um, So yeah, he was called to testify. And he said, if we can find any women that demonstrate that they have better qualifications for going into a program than we have going into that program... We would welcome them with open arms. And the gallery laughed at this, like, little faux pas. Like, like, oh, hey, ladies, come over here. Uh, and gross. so he blushes. No, to his credit, he blushed and said, for the purposes of my going home this afternoon, I think that should be stricken from the record. <laughs> <laughs> but then he gets kind of gross again and says that some things just aren't part of the social order. And since there were already qualified astronauts, there really wasn't any reason to spend money to qualify more. Wow. And 
And at this point in the hearing, JD and Jerry are thinking, well, that's a lot down. Good thing we have another day of the hearing to rebut these things. And then the chairman concluded the hearing. And thanks the nice astronauts for coming in today because he's got all he needs. Yeah. (laughs) They just lost. So, yeah. So the House committee released a statement that basically said they didn't see any evidence of discrimination, that we should move forward with what we have, and that women should be integrated later. Um, Bullshit. (laughs) It was like a one-sentence report on this hearing. Yeah, lest you think that NASA were just victims of a smear campaign, a NASA psychologist was quoted as saying about the verdict... Sure, women weigh less if you convince them to leave their purses behind. Oh my god. And, oh my god, it gets way more repugnant. So, Werner von Braun was speaking to a bunch of college students, and he quoted the leader of the manned space program, Robert Gilruth's thoughts on women astronauts as, well, we're reserving 110 pounds of payload for recreational equipment. Oh god. I know! That used to be okay to say. I think that shit's still okay. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) Alas, you are right. (laughs) We just need to get more taser guns and start, you know, instead of trying to go to the subcommittee, we should just take the rockets. That'd be great. Well, we have them now, sort of. Um, Well, the Russians do, but sometimes we hitch a ride. (laughs) but yeah so Cobb got dismissed not surprisingly from her consultant position at NASA after a lot of speaking engagements where she referred to herself as the most unconsulted consultant Uh, she literally never got a dime for the supposed consultant position that she had Jackie Cochran became their new consultant and one of her chief complaints was that they weren't listening to her (laughs) Well, she just fuck her, man. (laughs) And Randy Lovelace became the official head of space medicine at NASA. So the question of if he would have resumed testing on women when the temperatures died down is unfortunately this hypothetical one because he died in a plane crash in 1965. Uh. So, I mean, for all we know, we could have gotten women in space earlier than we did, but we'll never know. Jerry sort of stopped writing... James Webb once Valentina Tereshkova was launched because she realized the battle was lost. Um, she actually even sent him like a sad letter that was like, do I need to become a parachutist? Is that what it takes? <laughs> like, is that all? That sucks. No. She became a missionary in South America for a while. <laughs> Great. <laughs> There were no women selected for NASA's astronaut program until 1978, which was the same year that after campaigns, pickets, and lawsuits from the NAACP, the National Organization of Women, of which Janie Hart was a founding member, and that was also the first time that there were candidates other than white males to be NASA astronauts. Wow. Five years later, Sally Ride was the first American woman in space. And just saying, by the standards of the pilots, by the standards of the pilots in Mercury 13, she wasn't really the real finish line, since she was a passenger, which is what several of them had commented derisively back in the day they weren't signing up for. 
Yeah. It wasn't until 1995 when Eileen Collins piloted a mission that the full scale of what they were trying to argue back at that Senate hearing in 1962 was shown that women were entirely capable of piloting space missions. And in 1999, she showed that they were entirely capable of commanding one too. And Eileen Collins invited these finalists to all of her mission launches. Seven of them attended the launch of her first mission, 10 her commanding mission, and she stated several times that she recognizes that she's very indebted to them because they showed pretty early on that women were capable of it, even if nobody was listening back then. Mm Mm-hmm. And that if they'd fallen flat on their faces, she probably wouldn't have gotten to where she was. Oh. So that's kind of awesome, <laughs> I guess, if extremely delayed. <laughs> <laughs> well, cheers. Thank you for listening to Dame is a Four-Letter Word. I'm LP. And I'm Lindsay. And this is and... a special edition. Yep. And, uh, yeah, we're not trying to throw shade on the moon landing or anything. But it's just good to keep in mind that just because a society did what is supposedly this global uniting event doesn't mean that they were actually trying to include everyone within that. <laughs> Word. such fucking fancy beer well i have bodegas and i live in brooklyn and this one's amazing (laughs) because it's it's like got grapefruit and ginger in it and it just tastes like summer i've got a grocery store and i live in gleedless so all i have is fosters now okay but it is australian for beer and it does come in in a size there can be no illusions None of this, yeah. oh yeah, you're going to drink 12 ounces of this beer? Wait, what are you talking about? I feel like Kinney's are normal. I thought Foster's no? is the ones that are all like 20 ounces and shit. Or is that just here? Many... It doesn't say anywhere, but... It's not I think a giant it's... can? Yeah, it is a giant can, but all the cans here are giant in England. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> God damn it. Americans, we're the ones that are like children. Like, there's little fucking mini cans this whole time. Dude, I've seen signs advertising the subway for the 7.5 ounce Heineken. Oh, God. What's the point? If you're. I can understand drinking 7.5 ounces of a good beer with a high alcohol content, but if you drink Mm. 7.5 ounces of a Heineken, you're not even buzzed and you just drink a Heineken. Yeah. Really?